Hey, don't forget that uh, Malcolm Holmline, who is going to join us in a minute, is part of the Jewish Heritage Russia cruise. It's Jewish Heritage Russia with um, Rabbi Stephen Weil and Malcolm Holmline. The Jewish Heritage Cruise offers extensive lectures and incredible Jewish interest excursions at every port, including Poland, Lithuania, Russia, Finland, Sweden, and Berlin. In addition, they'll visit major secular sites. The cruise will leave... Uh, we'll leave uh, participants with an in-depth, first-hand exploration of European Jewish life through the ages. Uh, a memorable and moving post-cruise Shabbat in Berlin will be hosted by Rabbi Stephen Weil and Malcolm Holmline. Proceeds will be going back to the Jewish community uh, uh, there in that area. Uh, to participate in the Jewish Heritage Russia cruise with Rabbi Weil and Malcolm Holmline. It starts on July the 9th, so you have to act fast. It starts on July the 9th. Go to kosherica.com, kosherica.com. You will find it there under the uh, under their cruises, and, of course, all the accommodations and the itinerary is right there on the site. For information, you can call them at 877-724-5567, 877-724-5567. Six thirteen travel at gmail dot com. Six thirteen travel at gmail dot com. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning at JM in the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Oh, good morning. It's always good to be with you. Appreciate that. We'll start with Stay Road. The enemy. I guess you know Ramadan is over, so it's time for the enemy to. Uh, heat things up again on the border at the Gaza. We know that the yeshiva in Steyrot was hit yesterday. Uh, what do you know about the episode, and what do you know about Israel's reaction uh, to the enemy uh, regarding uh, what happened yesterday? Well, first of all, I don't think they took off for Ramadan this year. We saw the continuing demonstrations, uh, not only on Fridays, and of course, because they're fasting, they were somewhat diminished, But the and there was an agreement, as you know, the ceasefire, so-called, uh, but it's been violated uh, consistently. Hamas supposedly announced it and was not uh, a participant, but this was this was a rocket launch, and the rocket hit the, the yeshiva in Steyrot and damaged the building. In the um, and it's not the only incident of, of attempted cross-border attacks. The balloons have been continuing all along, and again, I know people don't tend to take them as seriously as they should because they cause a lot of damage and they cause injuries when the fires um, start to spread and when they land in you know fields that are dry now and, and ready for near harvest or in uh, forests and reserves, they cause serious damage. And the, the, um, uh, they have new means now to try and take them down using drones and using uh, a new technology which spots them and the balloons and other projectiles and is able to bring them down uh, at a reasonable cost. You know, you can't fire Iron Dome at balloons. Right. So the the situation there still remains very tense, and there's always concern about a, a blow-up that anything could trigger it. And the uh, internal rivalries continue, and as we get closer to the Bahrain meeting and other things, uh, one can expect that it will escalate. Um, You know, sometimes you see things on the web, and you're not sure what's a new development and what you're just seeing from, you know, months or years ago. 
Is there, in fact, some type of new chemical or some type of new innovation that the enemy has come up with to fill those balloons with? They said that there was some sort of a, an accelerant for the, for the virus into, and they've all along developed ways to make these balloons go further. I wouldn't say it's exactly high-tech, but it's... Um, Oh, I thought know, it was, I thought it was something that literally caused people to get ill. Like you know, if it went to their area, you know, it could cause them to either gag or you know develop something like that type of thing. I mean, I I, I don't know. You know, again, you don't know what you're reading and uh, and you know what's from today and what's from a year ago. But uh, that's what I saw. There I think were, even what what was there before caused uh, caused reactions on the part of people, and it depends you know where it lands. And uh, but I I don't think that they have engaged in that kind of chemical warfare, as, as far as I know. Right, nothing like that. That would okay. Um, David Friedman, ambassador uh, to Israel. So now uh, he, he he seems to have said in a New York Times interview uh, that Israel has a right to uh, annex the West Bank. Um, did he say anything wrong? Is are are people overreacting to his presentation? Well, he's he's clarified it. He he. The articles that have come out since the initial thrust will put it into the proper context that he wasn't just, uh, announcing a new policy. He was simply saying that, the, and he's right, if you go back to the original agreements, it doesn't say Israel has to leave all of the territories. The language was specifically crafted to allow for flexibility, and um, he did not say that they should, uh, that Israel should annex everything. So it's, again, another case where we see how the media distorts and misrepresents and will latch on to anything, especially critical of the administration or critical of, of U.S. policy uh, and certainly critical of Israel today, that the you know truth has become the real victim in, in this, that the, uh, the readiness and the quickness with which to expose these things, and yet you see so little attention to things going on region to Iran's activities hardly get any uh, proper coverage. And when we see the Houthis uh, attacking the, um, in the Gulf of uh, Oman or, or um, they hit the Saudi Arabia airport uh, and have repeatedly engaged in these kind of assaults, nobody talks about it. And they don't talk about now they can't avoid talking about the hit on the two ships. But the overall involvement of Iran in, in terrorist activities and the continuation in not only demonstrating that the JCPOA has become vacuous when Ali Heinen and other uh, leaders, um, experts, warn us that the that the nuclear program is continuing, and, um, and yet they take a story like this interview and blow it completely um, out of proportion. And and this certain he said he qualified it by saying under certain circumstances has the right to retain some but unlikely uh, all of the West Bank, something to that effect. Um, and that is, is not inconsistent with the, uh, with the U.N. resolutions that were passed uh, decades ago. I don't know if he was advocating it. That's his personal uh, uh, view. Uh, and the State Department quickly said that they didn't, have, that didn't represent any change in policy. Right. Um, by the way, your, your phone is uh, 
not cooperating 100%. You may want to move closer to the base. I'm not quite sure exactly what the problem is. When, when, when he does that, though, in the State Department, you know, and that, that seems like the tradition, you know, when someone, when someone from an administration comes out with a statement that seems, you know, a bit questionable, the State Department is always out there either saying this is not a change of policy or clarifying that, you know, that, 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 that what they said might be a change of policy, but we're not, you know, we're not ready to endorse that change of policy. I, I, th- there's no way he would make that statement if he felt that anyone in his White House administration would be rattled by it, right? There's no way that, that, he, that, that he would even offer a statement like that about either annexation or sovereignty without you know, the knowledge that everybody in the White House was comfortable with it, correct? I don't know that, that, that this was uh, you know, something premeditated or was just... Uh... Uh, an expression of a view of his interpretation of uh, the, the the law. Uh, I don't think that it's something that necessarily went through uh, pre-clearance with the administration, uh, because I don't think he he meant it to to break any new ground, but was simply expressing a view. And, and you've seen his clarification since then would seem to underscore that. By the way, someone pointed out to me this week, I didn't even think of it, that uh, you know, with everybody leaving the White House over the last couple of years, in fact, someone said to me last night that anybody they knew in Washington is now gone. Like, you know, there's that whole that whole group that initially was working on the campaign can't be found anywhere at this point. Uh, and Sarah Sanders is now leaving, so you see, you know, again, this, you know, revolving door continues. And yet he he's, he's in his position, the ambassador, without any you know, without any reason to believe that he's leaving anytime soon. Now, I know ambassadorships may be a little different, but isn't there something significant to that? That with all this movement in the administration, he's there as a as a as what seems to be you know a permanent fixture. Well, first of all, he has a you know pl- close personal relationship with the the president, but he has the the, the benefit of of distance, um, so he's not caught in the day to day. Administration struggles or whatever. Uh, it is not unusual that after two years, administration uh, see change. This one appears to be more rapid and more widespread. Um, but the ambassadors tend to to serve out their terms. Right. He's as a personal sacrifice in terms of, uh, I'm sure, financially and other ways. But it's very rewarding that uh, he gets to to live in Israel, which he has always been a great supporter of and involved in. So it's it's a great incentive to stay in the job and to to continue. Will the area of Bruchim in the Golan actually be turned into a place called Trump Heights? It is uh, today. We're going to today's the day. Today's the day <laughs> that uh, Prime Minister is going to announce it's going to be called Ramot Trump. Wow, uh, Trump Heights in the Golan Heights in recognition both of the president's actions vis-a-vis Jerusalem, the recognition of Jerusalem, and Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. I got to talk about Israel's election plan, but first, Abe in Japan goes to Iran now. I, again, this is something that we on this side of the world, you know, follow. You know, except for people like yourself, you know, don't follow much in terms of Japanese influence in international diplomacy. But is, is this simply an effort to try to demonstrate that Japan has more influence than we thought, or that he could actually be a peacemaker? What's the purpose of this trip? Well, I have talked to previous Japanese uh, prime ministers about it, and they have a first of all, they have a close relationship because of the energy that Japan buys a lot of oil from. Uh, from Iran and, and long has, um, but the um, and we're, we're not aware of the close relationship between North Korea and Japan and um, 
and Iran that the mutuality of the the missile program, which is based on the Nildang created by North Korea, and you know the Japanese are apoplectic about the threat of North Korea. Uh, so that connection, I think, uh, which we kept pointing out to them, uh, was uh, uh, years ago already was a, an influence in this, but their overall need for energy and getting it from Iran overrode, I think, all considerations. Uh, I think this mission may have been undertaken with the support of the United States. Uh, I wasn't there, so I don't know, but I know that that's the the indications are that this was and he and was going to discuss some possibilities of uh, mediation or, or at least talks. Uh, I think that has been shot down. The Supreme Leader yesterday told Abe that there's no basis that he wouldn't even answer the message that Abe brought from supposedly from the president um, and uh, told him in, in Tehran that the it's not, quote, worthy of a response, which I think is exact words to use. And uh, he said, I have no reply now or in the future. So he sort of put a, the public kibosh on, on uh, whatever the message was. So he's essentially a proxy for the U.S.? So essentially, that would be the indication. Well, proxies is wrong. I think um, messenger would be closer. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people. There are backdoor channels always going on. This one just was very high profile, and of course, the visit of the Japanese prime minister there is is uh, is being treated as a major issue because they consider it a victory, you know, to break the isolation, and um, and now especially given the the. Um, the attack yesterday and the fact that Iranian ships were seen nearby and America supposedly has videos of it and, you know, implicating Iran in the attack on the two ships in the Gulf of Oman, uh, they're going to want to do anything to divert attention or to uh, bring it, you know, to, to away from their involvement there, as they are they highlight every day in their newspapers any visit by a foreign leader and, of course, always uh, exaggerate the significance of that they all sign a hundred deals but nothing seems to come of them and the um, uh, so the visit is not insignificant but I think from all indications it was uh, really uh, largely a shlichut from the president. Mm, interesting. Uh, in terms of uh, the Israeli elections first of all mo- most people ignored the fact that there was a settlement in one of the Sarah Netanyahu cases right? It made very little impact in terms of the news and the news well, cycle here certainly in Israel it it got uh, it did get attention it did yeah. get some attention yeah. in Israel oh yeah it was it was covered very widely so and, the catering but case she also didn't go to I don't think she went to the court itself it ah. was all handled but uh, you know she settled she pled guilty to something and um, so the catering case a, is settled but the housekeeper case is not settled yet. As far as I know, that this is this all these cases are, her cases are essentially over. That this may have been a omnibus settlement, or that they're, they're not pursuing. Uh, but oh, the case brought by the um, housekeeper. Right? Yeah, that is a different. Uh, right. That's a different. Suit. The other thing is, you got to humor me uh, yet for another week as I go through these election theories because I again continue to be. Uh, um, uh, just, <laughs> I, I'm I am shocked at how these developed with the uh, uh, dissolution of the Knesset. Uh, I, I think there are now three. Last week I gave you two. Now I think there are three directions that the Israeli electorate can go in. Uh, we can look at it as complete fatigue and literally see the voter turnout go from significant numbers in Israel, which is what seventy, eighty percent or more, right? Sometimes uh, to something you know drastically. Mm-hmm. drastically uh, 
Lower. Uh, lower, 50%. I don't know, whatever whatever figure you want to use. Uh, then I think there is an enough with BB uh, reaction. I think that there are people who look at what just happened as another one of his magical tricks. And the, that, yeah. And that's the, way the, that's the way the press in Israel, by the way, presents it, literally like a magician. And I think that he could suffer for that. Uh, for that reason. And then I think there's a new third Siegel theory on the election. And the third Siegel theory of the election is that as summer begins and continues with the late Tisha B'Av and everything else, Israelis are going to wake up around Labor Day or around the time that school starts, whether it's after Tisha B'Av, September 1st, or whatever it is officially, and, and they're going to say to themselves, wow, we have an election coming up. And I think that that might just, you know, I, I don't know if there'll be enough time for people to really get into the swing of a real campaign and take the interest that they might if there was a months-long, uh, you know, marathon-type campaign. Do you do you appreciate any of these Siegel election theories? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> any of them strike your fancy yeah, more than I, the others? I, I agree that all those are possibilities, and there are probably half a dozen more. Uh, but but um, uh, first of all, I, I think people are resentful of the election, having to go through it again, spending the money and the political overlay. And, you know, it has a crippling effect to a degree on the process and ministers not knowing what they're going to do. I I met with some yesterday and today. We're meeting others who are here for a conference, but the um, and I'll be there next week and and be meeting others. Uh, But, you know, even they, uh, there's a sort of mocking tone sometimes to what they're going through. And certainly the the uncertainty is clear. So the the question is, what will young people do? Will they vote again? Will they just throw up their hands and say this is a, you know an outrageous system? As you said, will will you know participation be limited to those who are most devoted and most involved, right. which could change? Then uh, we we have to see the what some of the changes this week. You saw the leaders of Labor Party step down which has created another vacuum, so they're going to have to have an election internally. The blue and white, it looks like, will stay more or less the same, so will some of the other parties. Uh, uh, Shaked's decision has yet to come, uh, and she's an important figure in, in the political scene today. She's a good vote-getter. So th- there are a lot of uncertainties, and of course no one knows what the international scene will look like. Will the, you know, they roll out any kind of a proposal? Will it be postponed? Uh, what the Bahrain conference will, will produce? All those have domestic ramifications as well. Not critical, because I think most people know how they're going to vote or aren't going to be influenced so much by the campaign, because they've heard everything over the previous months um, during the uh, election. So the question is, how much does the fatigue play in? Do people say that there's an alternative that we haven't seen before so far. It has not become obvious who who uh, the alternative would be that wasn't there before. Um, Blue and white doesn't seem yet to have have launched, but they may be holding their fire a little bit because, as you said, people are distracted during the summer as they are here. We always know that the real campaigns begin after Labor Day. Although in the Democratic Party now, it seems that it's going to be an ongoing day to day, every day between the 20 or 22 people who are running. Yeah, over two days in some cases with this first debate. That's right. Crazy. And, and I don't but, know. I, but, I don't know why but, I think But you're we, right about the focus here generally. Yeah, I don't know why I think, maybe because of the conventions, I always think we pay more attention to this stuff during the summer here 
than in Israel. They literally can go through July and August in Israel and, and just forget that they're in the middle of a campaign. I think. I don't know. Maybe I'm exaggerating it. I mean, I think it could happen in February and March, too, that people right. <laughs> don't pay attention to. Uh, but but because of the system, people are more directly connected to a party or to a candidate. Um, here, as you've seen, the Democratic Party, it's a, it's a very vibrant debate. And, and I don't know whether the numbers who are turning out at the events in Iowa, they're very rarely reported, indicate that there is a, a great deal of interest. And does that interest really... Uh, move nationwide until the numbers really come down to something reasonable that people can differentiate between one or two or three. Between 20, it's very hard. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSigl.com and the NachumSigl Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Support us by going to fjbunity.org and be part of our spring fundraiser. Again, it's fjbunity.org. You can give your generous donation on that website. Um, the Cruz Kane resolution, can we call it that? Cruz Kane resolution mm-hmm. on anti Semitism? Is it yeah. important what's happening now in the Senate? That the fact that it passed, yes. Uh, and um, it's, uh, it's a declaration again uh, against anti Semitism. That makes it uh, very significant. And the fact that it passed uh, overwhelmingly. It's it's again a measure that contributes to the message uh, that anti-Semitism is unacceptable, and hopefully we'll keep raising uh, the level of uh, you know the penalties and, and put prosecutors, others, state legislators in, on notice that this has to be dealt with in the serious way that it deserves. Too often, anti-Semitism was treated as a stepchild. And as we see the numbers, and particularly, I don't know if I referenced before, but the NYPD numbers, I think, have really shocked people. And I can tell you in my discussions with even American officials, even some New York officials, uh, when I, I mention it to them, it's obviously something that they hadn't um, uh, focused on. But the, the um, you know, the that's there's an 80% increase in hate crimes already this year, and that the vast majority, is 60-some percent, are against Jews. And the, that you kind of have these kinds of, of numbers, we need to get a response, and that means it has to start at the top and get official condemnation, but it also has to permeate throughout, and we can't let off people with a slap on the wrist that they, unless you send a message that this is really where the American people stand and our officials and our courts and our educators and that the universities, obviously, which would require an hour and a half or two discussion right now, that the um, importance of this is more than symbolic. That's for sure. Uh, Members of the United States House of Representatives are trying to urge uh, uh, Angela Merkel of Germany to designate Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. Why does she hesitate to do so? It's inexplicable because most of Europe has now come around, you know, this this fiction of dividing Hezbollah between the military and uh, the non-military or political wing is a fiction. It's all one organization. There is no distinction. Uh, I don't know whether it's concerned about domestic reaction or something else, but it's really inexplicable. America and the American ambassador there, Grinnell, has been very strong about this. So have others about um, trying to press the... um, 
the German government into uh, recognizing uh, Hezbollah because then they can continue to function under this so-called other guise or, or division, um, and, but they should be banned completely. And, and we see that Iran and Hezbollah continue to engage in all sorts of activities that the um, in, in, in Germany that the uh, um, Bavarian intelligence agency reported on the Iranian the violations. Uh, the Hezbollah was caught stockpiling explosives, according to a report this week in, in, uh, in London. It was a part of a, a major terror plot, they said, and they found explosives in northwest, um, in northwest London. But more than that, there was the, um, the report that also this week about Hezbollah's planned attacks on Israeli targets globally, and that they had worked for for years to stockpile uh, explosives in beyond London, in Cyprus, and Thailand, and other places. And Israel alerted the, those countries, but they have this network of caches of of advanced explosive materials to be able to launch massive terror attacks uh, at at the times and places that they choose. So fortunately. The information was gotten, and this was um, – we don't know whether everything was caught, but at least this is a major blow to this, uh, to this plan. And that's why Germany has to uh, recognize that the danger that Hezbollah poses not only in Lebanon but globally, and they're uh, taking this step. Is may, may, isn't more than, again, just a simply routine measure. It will help cripple – their ability to act in Europe. You know, when I read about the stockpiling that you just mentioned, and it was, I don't know if it was Thursday or Friday, it was before last Shabbos, before the three-day untith, that there was an arrest made of somebody who wanted to, a 22-year-old from Queens who wanted to, uh, you know, blow blow up Times Square, essentially, with explosives. And I'm, 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 and I'm starting to wonder, uh, not that I'm connecting him with Hezbollah, although, you know, in, 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 terms of, um, in terms of theology, it seems that he is lined up with Hezbollah based on what he said. Uh, but I mean, I, I guess that it's not a stretch to say that there are areas of the United States, whether New York or otherwise, that also could be areas like Thailand, London, and others that where where terrorist groups are stockpiling weapons. We see sometimes police going to someone's home and finding you know explosives and firearms that are you know of un- unusual proportion to say the least. So I mean, the the and not to scare anybody, but the potential for an organized terrorist organization. To set things up, even in cities like ours, you know, for you know, with, with with evil in mind, is not is not that big of a stretch, frankly. It is not at all. And if people would know how many prosecutions there are for people who have violated the anti-Iran um, things, meaning that they're sending parts for aircraft or other things for people who are acting as. Um, uh, Fronts for for these for the terrorist organizations, particularly Iranian-backed, uh, in the United States and elsewhere, um, the, um, the you know information always comes out long after because this is usually caught up in the um, nets of the, of the security agencies and and they try not to um, to expose them. But just look at the network of the the pattern of the sanctions that are being imposed. That the ties of of companies to uh, the Iran Revolutionary Guard of people, uh, so people in Queens arrested for for smuggling huge amounts of parts yeah. through various means, but more than that, the people who are are caught here with uh, with weapons, and then often we're told that they are lone operatives or 
you hear about the arrest and you may hear about them going trial, but you rarely hear about what happens in the end. And it's not because the system doesn't prosecute them. They try to. But the um, the fact is that, that Hezbollah has operatives all over. They bring people in South America. And when you talk about, you know, the people who cross the border from Mexico, we don't know how many of them are Hezbollah agents and how they use this as a way to get people into the United States. I'll tell you, the, the, we always warn people about letting our guard down. It, 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 it's so easy to be lulled into a sense of security, even with all the attacks that are going on and news that we hear constantly. And the potential for you know something really tragic happening is so blatantly out there that everyone has just got to uh, be as on guard as possible. And by the way, in this case, in Times Square, as usual, we laud the NYPD and those who are really on it. Because I don't have to tell you what could have happened if this guy would have gotten away with it. And and then also all the fundraising operations. And this week we saw a case in, in England where a charity, I think it was called Vibe or something like that, um, they found that they were engaged in no activities for uh, charitable activity of any kind, but these become uh, fronts for raising money for, for terrorist operations or for operatives both abroad and in the region. Unbelievable. And um, and there's only a limit to how much the United States can police that, right, in terms of the funding for those things and the, uh, and, you know, the international operation that, that goes on in order to, to fund those types of... Uh, of um, the systems, I guess we'd call it. I don't know. But there's just a, there's a limit. I mean, I know that, you know, it, it's hard to stay ahead of the bad guys, but it seems like they keep coming up with more and more ingenious ways to uh, to get away with things. Right, and that was why it was so important to close down the banking operations right. of, uh, uh, of Iran and the their ability to transfer money uh, through various means. They still come up with other channels and uh, you know they're very creative and the internet gives them opportunities and other things to link uh, in ways that make it more difficult for law enforcement but they're developing uh, technologies and things to to counter that as well but the you're right the, the the amount of activity and the extent to which they are able because our borders are so able to penetrate because our borders are so big we have such a you know it's such an open society that, um, uh, you know, that, and, and, and just take Iran's warnings seriously. It says America can't expect to be safe, to stay safe. He means it, and they, they implement it. And we have to be uh, on alert all the time. And, you know, there's a lot of fear about political correctness in some of these prosecutions and things that uh, diminish the ability of those who, who actually pursue these things uh, actively to move towards convictions and and to, to you know sometimes take the steps necessary to expose these clandestine operations. Do you worry that uh, because Israel's in this transition time again, which is not always a favorable time for them in terms of you know keeping an eye on the enemy, uh, are you worried that now we're again in election season without any? You know, I don't want to say without any real leadership, but you, let's say call it transitional leadership. Is that way a way of putting it? The enemy, including Iran in this case, who Israel, you know, has always had a uh, um, a close eye on, obviously, uh, could they feel that they can get away with things now over the next few months? They wouldn't, you know, if if things were more stable with the Israeli government. Well, you can make the argument the other way that uh, no government now will tolerate anything that will 
appear to be weak or uh, tolerant of these these attacks. And they won't hesitate and, to and make And the people decisions. in the South, you know, you see the, the frustration that they express, and that could be translated into how they vote. But by and large, they vote for we could anyway. Um, but the, the answer is that the military <coughs> is beyond the politics, by and large. And certainly the police and the others continue to function. We see it every day, the... the um, arrests that are ongoing, the prevention of terrorist attacks, uh, the countermeasures, the strikes in, in Gaza, even this week. So I think that uh, I, I'm not concerned that they're not on alert and, and uh, that somehow the political um, activities, they do divert attention, but they, I don't think that it diminishes the ability to protect the people. Um, couple of Exactly. I, I think there always has to be a decision maker. And I don't know, the impression always is that during a transitional time, you know, it, it might be more difficult for the person in charge to make a decision. Although I hear what you're saying that, you know, uh, that, in fact, this transitional time might be a little easier because of the because of the politics involved. Um, uh, Congressman Lowenthal on this two state solution um, uh, resolution in Congress. Um that now Representative Elon Omar has signed on to, and Betty McCollum, who's introduced legislation that would condition military aid to Israel over its policy of administrative detention of Palestinian children, she signed on to in mid-May. Uh, is this is this a, also just like the anti-Semitism resolutions? Is this also a big deal if that you know, that Congress comes out and reaffirms the U.S. commitment to a two-state solution? Look, you know, this has become a matter of uh, debate because of some of the. Um Comments have been made. The question: If you start questioning people, what they, how they define what a two-state solution means, it's become a code word for peace process or desire for peace or coexistence, etc. Um, the ambassador, Ambassador Dermer, pointed out that 100 of 120 members of Knesset in the last election did not run on platforms that mentioned two-state solution because it's it's not defined. The question is: Is it, it, it do you want to see? The Palestinian Authority with uh, weaponized? Do you want to see the Gaza weaponized? Do you want to see them um, linking up to foreign powers? Uh, you know, when you start talking about what powers would would this uh, would the second state have? It's not the principle that I think is in dispute. It's become a definitional issue, but because it has assumed the significance that it has in the general parlance, and then this becomes a line that they draw, whether this is meant to, to be a shot across the bow for Netanyahu or for Israel, um, and, you know, Betty McCollum is not somebody who was a supporter of Israel, so are some of the others, and there are friends of Israel who have joined uh, the debate uh, because of statements that come out of Israel and things that come out during a political campaign can sometimes go beyond what the usual rhetoric is. Uh, it happens in the United States. It happens in every uh, democracy. But this has uh, been running up somewhat of a false flag when the people jump on this and say, well, it diminishes the commitment for peace, et cetera, et cetera. The, um, you know, you have to go back to the origins of what the two-state solution meant, it's obviously something that, by and large, American presidents have always uh, pledged to, and the Israeli prime ministers, Prime Minister Netanyahu, gave that speech at Bar Ilan, and he talked about the two-state solution. It wasn't a government resolution; it was his expression of his, you know, view. But it's not defined, and that's really the the um, really significant uh, trap here 
is how you define what a two-state, not whether you want peace and not whether there's a commitment to peace that I think remains as strong as ever. And the recalcitrance of the Palestinians to come to Bahrain, to participate, to condemn anybody who does, to putting pressure on everyone. The Jordanians still haven't decided to come because in large part of uh, Palestinian pressure, three other Arab states this week announced that they would. Um, you know, that's the real test is, are you ready to make peace? And then all these other things will fall into line. Join Malcolm Holmline, July 9th, Jewish Heritage Cruise. July 9th through the 19th, kosherica.com has all the information or dial 877-724-5567 or email 613travel at gmail.com. By the way, I saw the latest Mo Berg documentary. It's unbelievable how many heroes there were in World War II that, that we just don't realize how many people were involved in intelligence and in different things, you know, some small, some larger that played such an important and vital role uh, in the U.S. Uh, uh, winning the war, essentially. And uh, and he, being a member of the Jewish community and the connection that he had, you know, to baseball and everything else with his fame. He was uh, the catcher who was a spy. Right. And uh, it's, it's spy. a really an amazing story. But you're right. There, there were so many people, the unsung heroes about whom there weren't documentaries, which comes to mind when you saw the Normandy and the yeah. uh, commemorations. And for most Americans, I think it was... Uh, very distant, to say the least, yeah. and that the you know it's important for us to remember both the sacrifices they made and those who, who paid, uh, but also what the fight was about. And we today are facing a fight against similar forces, and to to um, you know we should be inspired by the example that they set. No question about it. And the sacrifice they made and the commitment they made to the future of the uh, free world. Really amazing. Um, next week you're in Israel? Is that what you... Yes, uh, sir. All right. So we hope to speak from uh, Jerusalem, Absolutely. I assume. Uh, thank you very much and have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Next week, Bezrat Hashem, he'll be in Jerusalem when he speaks with us on Friday morning.